Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this UCList lunch hour lecture. I'm Paola Lettieri, Professor of Chemical Engineering at UCL and Director of UCList, our new campus that is being built at the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park and will open next year. Every month, we have introduced a different topic related to the academic activities that UCList will encompass. And today, our speaker is Ben Kamkin, Professor of the History and Theory of Architecture and Urbanism at UCL's Bartlett Faculty of the Built Environment. Ben is also the co-director of UCL's Transdisciplinary Urban Laboratory, an academic lead as well involved with the development of UCList since the very beginning. So Ben has been researching urban change since the early 2000s, and in 2013, he published Remaking London, Decline and Regeneration in Urban Culture, in which he draws the history of regeneration in London from the 1920s to the Olympics in 2012. And in 2017, he co-authored a report on LGBTQ plus cultural infrastructure in London, which influenced the mayoral and planning policies. And he also curated co-curated an exhibition for Whitechapel Art Gallery on queer spaces in London from the 1980s to today. He is currently completing a monograph on this subject, and this is really the subject of his lecture today, which is entitled London's Queer Infrastructure. So before handing over to Ben, I would like to remind you that you can post the questions on Slido, and the code to use for today is L. HL2, and we will answer your questions after the talk. So Ben, over to you. Thank you so much, Paola. Thank you very much. And thanks for the invitation and to Sana and Matt and Cleo and colleagues for organizing the lecture today. And thank you very much for, for coming. I'm just going to try and share my screen before I begin. Okay, so I'm hoping, uh, please interrupt me if you can't see the screen, but I'm hoping that that worked and you can see my slides now. Um, so I'm very pleased to give this lecture today. Um, and I believe that these lectures are to point to the kinds of que questions and activities that we might be engaged with at UCL East. And so I'm going to speak about work that we've been doing on LGBT communities and urban change in urban lab. And as Paola mentioned, Urban Lab is a cross-faculty centre that promotes critical and creative and collaborative inquiry into pressing local and global urban challenges. And we'll be launching a new Master of Arts and Sciences degree at UCL East in global urbanism, um, and also collaborating with colleagues to curate an urban room and memory workshop, which is dedicated to public debate around key questions of urbanism, public history and heritage. So the activity area that I lead in Urban Lab looks at what I call queer infrastructure, which is shorthand for the heritage and spaces associated with LGBT populations and their relationships with governance and redevelopment. And I'll offer a definition of this in my talk today. This work also connects with a, another key area for us on nighttime cities, which is led by my colleague, Professor Matthew Beaumont in UCL's English department. As I hope to demonstrate, these broad topics of queer infrastructures and nocturnal cities are of increasing interest to a range of academics, policymakers, cultural institutions, professional groups and publics internationally, and not least in the environment of UCL East. 
I'll work in urban lab since the mid 2000s and the research that I've recently been doing, particularly with our research fellow, Lo Marshall, has contributed evidence from London to these international discussions and is, is represented in publications such as these, which are mostly downloadable from our website. At UCL East, our campus will be located in some of the most socially diverse boroughs in London and in, in the UK. And trying to find nuanced ways of engaging with this diversity and the complexity it brings is something that occupies many of us, just as it does the local authorities and other institutions and indeed the communities in the boroughs. Although London as a whole exhibits diversity, it's in East London that the post-industrial shift has since the 1960s and 70s been most dramatic. To navigate this complexity, we have to think in specific ways about how, as the geographer Doreen Massey understood it, the global and local are intertwined. To understand the ways that this huge socioeconomic restructuring has taken place and the impacts of the Go East and Olympic strategies that have been embedded in the London plan since 2004, we need to look in detail at particular places and communities and the translocal processes and transactions that shape their experiences. So boroughs like Newham and Tower Hamlets have been described as super diverse. And this notion usually refers to differentiation within immigrants uh, or migrant communities. I want to focus on sexual and gender diversity as it's been construed or perhaps neglected in planning. Of course, LGBT communities are also commonly characterized by migration experiences as people move to cities from different countries seeking belonging uh, or from other places uh, in the same country, um, uh, often looking for a sense of safety or belonging. And so intersectional approaches are needed to understand difference within LGBT communities. In this context of social complexity, I think we can learn much from grassroots initiatives such as Queer Newham or Forestgate Pride, who have created networks serving queer populations in these areas through through these processes of dramatic urban change that have characterized the last decades. These networks are at once local and transnational, and they're framed partly as celebrations of diversity and as also as responses to social diversity and also as responses to prejudice and the, the challenges of uh, social mix. And so they really emphasize London's complex com condition as a contemporary global city. So one question is how can we work with such networks and existing diversity and heritage as we UCL and other huge East Bank institutions move into the area. Although I won't speak exclusively about East London, I've tried to give an Eastern slant to the examples I'm going to draw on today. And some of that's easy because some of the main scenes and some of the main regeneration conflicts in redevelopment have been located in these areas as well as close to our campus uh, in Bloomsbury. So through focusing on LGBT spaces and governance, I want to address questions which are more widely relevant perhaps to UCL as we open our new campus. So for example, how do we value social and cultural infrastructure within urban change? And this is a term that's featured in all of the London plans since the first one was published in 2004. So what does this mean and why is it important? Secondly, what functions within the wider social and cultural infrastructure 
do nighttime spaces serve and how are nighttime spaces and activities valued or not in context of urban development or in planning? And then how does queer infrastructure or other kind, kinds of social infrastructure positively enrich our understanding of diversity and integration across lines of social difference? So these are some of the questions I'm interested in exploring today. There's a really rich literature on gender, sexuality and urban space and on nighttime venues associated with LGBT people. It goes right back to the 1960s and many of you may be familiar with this. So in disciplines like geography and sociology and history and urban studies. And processes of social and cultural reproduction uh, claims to and critiques of heritage and placemaking are central to the politics of gender and sexuality and have been discussed in books such as the ones in this slide since the 1960s. So this Anglo-American literature emerged in the 1960s through scholar activism that was linked to liberationist movements that were seeking uh, sexual liberation and, and liberation, gender liberation. And these were produced in conversation with particular neighborhoods and venues and involved taking up space in streets and squares. Um, and so we might think of the Stonewall riots in New York in 1969, the reaction against police oppression in New York City, uh, which was this key moment in gay liberation politics, but also the Gay Liberation Front in the US uh, had, a, had translated to the UK context through the GLF in the UK. And these activist movements took place alongside newly visible concentrations of lesbian and gay populations in cities where they'd migrated to find community and to build political capital in the face of criminalization and discrimination. So a first wave of studies from the 60s and 70s offered empirical accounts of the networks and subcultures and identities of gays and lesbians in the past and present. And these sought to overturn the pathologization of queer sexualities and to challenge the presumed natural superiority of heterosexuality, of binary gender or essentialist understandings of biology. And then in the 1990s, queer theory emerged as a really rich field of interdisciplinary inquiry. And this included a really lively discussion around queer placemaking um, and also a more diverse set of uh, queer subjectivities. So beyond just gay and lesbian people uh, opening up to the broader spectrum of queer identities. So politically queer theory challenged normative constructions of the world in which uh, and this included the power relations that were embedded in cities, in their spaces, in their organization, in their rhythms, and associated particularly with capitalist cities and neoliberal cities, and critiqued the way that these power structures materialized through conventional heterosexist or heterosexual um, modes of family and inheritance and property and ownership and the way in which power transmitted through the built environment. Since the 2000s, there's also been a really rich literature around the loss of LGBT spaces, the spaces that were so important to earlier liberationist gay politics, including nighttime venues in cities such as London and New York, as these cities have become ever more uh, financialized and uh, development has taken place so rapidly that often these smaller scale cultural institutions have been lost or threatened. 
current work also opens up discussions of sexual and gender diversity globally uh, and includes critiques of the Western and neo-colonial emphasis of certain identities uh, in, in these discussions uh, in Anglo-American scholarship and points to a wider consideration of queer subjectivities in different parts of the world. And this is something that our colleagues at QCL, the LGBT research network at UCL, uh, is a very rich uh, field within that network. And by the way, when that network was formed in the 2010s, we took inspiration from the engagement of Jeremy Bentham, who was the, the mythical founder of, of UCL, on questions of sexual freedom. So Bentham constructed at the time very revolutionary arguments for the decriminalization of homosexuality between men um, and at his, in his time execution and public shaming for these so-called unnatural acts were frequent in British society. So today, acknowledging Britain's historic colonial export of criminalizing practices and stigmatizing morals uh, regarding sexuality, we can also participate in a digitally augmented, globally networked queer politics of empathy across different places and cultures. And these politics are propelled within queer venues uh, and queer venues are very important in generating and um, producing those uh, movements for improved human rights around the world. And they're often organized around migration, diasporic identities and histories. Okay, so uh, recent activism and scholarly discussions have raised the continuing need for spaces for LGBT communities in complex post-colonial cities. And while our city has benefited, certainly benefited from social and legal gains, there's also a strong wealth of evidence of poor health and well-being and socioeconomic circumstances and continuing discrimination for many LGBT community members. One question arises, how can these groups connect across different generations without access to built heritage and space as these spaces are being eliminated through gentrification? So having sketched some of these contexts, I now want to focus on a historic case study from the 80s and then turn to some more recent venues in East London uh, and debates about them to look at how governance to towards LGBT citizens has been organized since 2000. So in London in the 1980s, a moment of really intense crisis and discrimination uh, around the AIDS crisis instigated multiple initiatives to demarcate lesbian and gay belonging. And these were fostered by a new left municipal urban governance at local and metropolitan scales and they were linked to international campaigns for rights. In the 1970s, the Gay Liberation Front, which was the main movement for lesbian and gay rights, had brought together leftist identity and sexual liberationist politics. And these unfolded through direct action, claims on space, uh, consciousness raising around discrimination, and a critique of exclu the exclusionary qualities of commercial gay scenes. The influence of the Gay Liberation Front uh, and the continuation of heated debates about individual and collective identity that the movement encompassed was still felt in the 1980s. 
And at this time, the Greater London Council, which was led by Ken Livingstone at the time, wrote international gay and lesbian and other minority rights into urban policy in London. So in, in London, in Farringdon, the multi-use London Lesbian and Gay Centre was established through uh, Fiona McLean's redesign of a former chicken pro processing factory uh, facility rather. And this is the back entrance and the front was quite anonymous and plain looking because queer venues were attacked frequently at the time. Um, and this was quite a short lived pro project, but it was really important in serving uh, multiple functions for multiple groups in this really tumultuous decade when AIDS was ravaging the community. There was a lot of homophobic violence and political and media stigmatization. So it was concealed in this ex-industrial space on an, on an infrastructural site next to a working market and it became a kind of powerhouse for international campaigns for rights. And it was a place of activism, of protest, of marches, of meetings, of sex, of information sharing, of dancing, of education, of archiving, remembrance and much more. So in process and form, the centre, which was funded by the GLC, embodied the local government's anti-homophobic and wider equalities agenda and its emphasis on accessibility. So when we think about things like the Discrimina uh, Discrimination Disability Act now, none of that was around at the time and the GLC at this moment was really uh, uh, pushing forward the frontiers of equalities and through the projects that it was funding and in this case through the redesign of this building. So note, for example, the external wheelchair ramp uh, for direct entry um, and much attention was uh, spent on various different accessibility um, systems within this building. And it was also where pamphlets like this, uh, which were also very accessibly designed, Changing the World, a London Charter for Gay and Lesbian Rights were launched and, and printed often as well. So some of the material from this period is really amazing in terms of the design and it kind of moves between this quite uh, governance uh, level uh, form of communication and this kind of DIY aesthetic that many of the different activists were engaged with at the time. Um, and the centre itself was imagined within a network of centres in London but also in, in the UK, there were others in the UK and also internationally. And the Greater London Council Enterprise Board really wanted to invest in what they called infrastructures of cultural distribution. So up until this point, queer venues had historically been hidden in commercial spaces by necessity. Uh, and the center was framed as a chance to work towards greater inclusion through this kind of socialist approach. It was set up as a cooperative uh, and it was given local, local government funding. Uh, and eventually that funding was withdrawn and it had to become a social enterprise, which was obviously a new thing at the time. Um, you can see from this cartoon that a lot went on in this building. So everything from sort of counseling services at the top to a separate women's space, a creche, um, educational um, spaces. I hope you can see my pointer. I'm not quite sure whether you can. I'm moving it around the screen. Um, but I'm, I'm pointing at the diagram on the right, the cartoon on the right. And at the bottom, you had this disco where um, people gathered as well. And things like the pride marches would start and finish from the centre. So it was really important in 
for a whole range of activities and hosting a whole range of different services and charities and so on, a really important civic, civic space. Um, everything from the Gay Business Association to very radical um, AIDS activism um, that was doing really important work at the time. So it was quite an interesting outcome that the center was ever funded because it was funded by the Thatcher government, which was extremely homophobic um, because they had a capital underspend, which they funneled to the Greater London Council just before they then dissolved the Greater London Council. Um, and in fact, high profile criticisms of the GLC by the government led by Mrs. Thatcher uh, and accompanied by the withdrawal uh, of funding and the abolition of the GLC were the main reasons that it uh, that determined its rapid demise. And in many ways, it's quite remarkable that it able, was able to keep going until 1992. And its closure meant that there was no dedicated center uh, in London, unlike in Manchester or New York or other cities. But in the meantime, it had seeded many important organizations, uh, some of which continue to be really important to London's queer infrastructure. So what do I mean by queer infrastructure? Well, as well as pointing to the 1980s concept of infrastructures of cultural distribution, there's also a close association between queer spaces and former or tr existing transport infrastructure. The transportive networked qualities of queerness evoked by the queer studies scholar, Jose Esteban Munoz, to describe New York City in the 2000s when zoning regulations were squeezing out uh, cabaret spaces uh, is really resonant in London too. In these cities, night venues have physically inhabited service sites. Here in London, a railway outbuilding um, right next to UCL uh, as a lesbian members club, a gay bar in a Victorian coach house, a large nightclub in a canal side goods building in King's Cross, and a sauna in a viaduct in Vauxhall. So there's a very little way in which these are uh, inhabiting infrastructural spaces, but also the term infrastructure has military origins and the, that has a particular strong resonance in that a lot of these spaces in the eighties had to be quite fortified and anonymous because um, they were safe spaces at the time of uh, physical uh, and other kinds of attack. So I propose that instead of thinking today of individual LGBT venues, we think of a dynamic queer infrastructure that, and this is a term that connects with today's planning as well, this idea of social infrastructure, which is used in London. And I describe this in various different ways um, because of time, I'm just gonna race through this, but I think the important characteristics are that they're this captures the diversity and dynamism of scenes and the different kinds of typologies. Uh, it captures this link to physical infrastructure. It communicates that these are spaces of connection and belonging across generations. Um, it communicates that they are not confined to buildings, that they extend through media and today to social media, but to the communications technologies of the day that they are really important in transporting resources and services and information where those groups are not otherwise provided for, um, that they are culturally generative, that they uh, foster better 
futures, they allow spaces of imagination. And that they, although locally embedded, that they are shaped by these global dynamics of global cities, governance, but also migration and exchanges in political cultures and activism. So how have these venues been shaped by urban governance since 2000, when the pleasant, present London mayoralty and its administration, the Greater London Authority, were established? So the radicalism of the feminist and lesbian and gay and black and disability social movements of the 60s, 70s and 80s had by this time instigated a broader shift in Western democracies towards the inclusion of sexual diversity and citizenship within governance in the 90s and 2000s. So under the new London government that the Blair um, New Labour government uh, established as part of their devolution agenda in 2000, sexual orientation and LGBT equality were key strategic areas in London politics from the beginning. But this was within the new orthodoxy of neoliberal global city governance. So in the 80s, we'd had the deregulation of the markets, we'd had the London doctrines development um, in East London, kind of propelling this new experimental form of market-led urbanism. Um, and, and so once Ken Livingstone became mayor, uh, he'd been the leader of the GLC, he became the first mayor of London, was elected in 2000. This earlier form of quite radical leftist politics became mixed with this quite uh, orthodox neoliberal uh, form of urban governance. And so the Livingstone era is quite full of contradictions and it has some very progressive policies that were building on the earlier GLC, anti-racist, anti-homophobic, feminist aligned uh, way of governing the city. And it recognized social infrastructure as, as, as important. It used this term and that was a really powerful way of visualizing the range of different services and spaces that supported minorities. And it named specific minorities, the first London plan, um, taking uh, the, 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 the terms that have today become enshrined in the Equalities Act, the, the protected minorities. Um, this was already present in the London plan in 2004 but at the same time the mayor's main power and role was to facilitate large-scale infrastructure development and this was often to the benefit of developers and big institutions um, and often had adverse effects for what the plan called london's diverse population including grassroots venues so on the one hand, Livingstone was advocating for increased equality and social sustainability. On the other, he had quite limited power. And one of his main functions was to attract investment in infrastructure, including the East development strategy, Go East regeneration strategy. And, you know, London is also at this point is being celebrated and this is wrapped into the uh, politics of sexuality and LGBT citizenship it's um, celebrating itself as a world-class benchmark for diversity, even though its global city status is so deeply linked to the imperial past and the inequality that that had produced and continues to produce around the world. 
And from the 1980s, London had become this experimental ground for financial speculation through the built environment and these market-led approaches to regeneration. So a lot of contradictions here. Um, and uh, Ian Gordon and Tony Travers write of the, the ungovernability of London during this period because of its complexity, because of the interactions between different actors and issues and uh, ways of thinking about diversity and the unintended effects of policy as well. Um, that it's, it's a city that's it's very difficult to manage because in its post-colonial uh, condition, it's extremely uh, complex. And certainly the relationship between equalities policies and urban processes is not straightforward and became rather out of sync. So whilst you had these protective policies, you also had things like um, the Channel Tunnel rail link development uh, of, of uh, King's Cross unfolding, uh, eliminating a whole cluster of LGBT venues, and also Crossrail around the Tottenham Court Road train station. And so here, uh, in, in around the Tottenham Court Road development, I'm showing you one of the uh, key clubs that was demolished, the Astoria, which had this very uh, established uh, night, um, a series of events called GAY, um, uh, oc occupied this space. And so this is interesting because on the one hand, it prompted the demolition through a compulsory purchase of this space, prompted the first online petition to save an LGBT venue. Um, but it also was the first time the GLA flagged within an equalities assessment process uh, a, an LGBT venue as under threat. And so Livingstone was aware that this was happening, but was kind of powerless to save the venue. Um, and it, interestingly, other types of heritage, like the musical subcultural musical heritage of the area um, was somehow reprovided for in the development. But uh, although the one, this one GAY nightclub um, did manage to find other premises. Around the corner, many of the less uh, commercial uh, LGBT venues that were serving multiple community functions were actually eliminated um, and weren't named in the equalities, weren't recognized in the equalities assessment process. Um, and, and many of these uh, served really important functions for multiple people. Uh, uh, and uh, weren't, weren't rehoused, weren't compensated and so on. So these equalities assessment processes can be quite crude, even if they're carried out with good intentions, of course. Um, and certainly things, brands and commercial organizations that are more aligned to global city um, kind of institutional dynamics are more easy, easy to recognize within these processes. So, the data that Lowe, Marshall and I gathered from 2016 to 2017 showed that in the period from the institution of the GLA, which is about halfway through this graph in 2000 until 2017, the uh, number of formal LGBT venues rose, but then declined quite rapidly. And it did so alongside these large scale infrastructure schemes that were being incentivized in the London plan. So there was this direct link between closures and these large-scale transport and retail-led redevelopment uh, projects. Um, and also, along with pubs, LGBT venues being affected by conversion of spaces to residential use from cultural uses. Uh, 
as uh, London's housing crisis worsened. And so we saw a 58% drop of LGBT venues in the decade to 2017. And when you look at the different uh, uses of those spaces, you also see worse effects for the most marginal of LGBT groups. So there are fewer spaces for women and, and more of those spaces taken away. Same with trans and queer people of color, um, spaces associated with those groups were worse, uh, worse off in terms of how they were affected by these dynamics and had less provision of space in the first place. So ostensibly each mayor of London has engaged with LGBT groups, but you can certainly see changes in the speed and the political intent and the material impacts of their actions. And Boris Johnson arrived in office with a more ambivalent record on LGBT issues. Uh, so including his voting record on sexual orientation equality, um, he came to office having made misogynistic and classist and homophobic statements, having supported Section 28, which was the Thatcher government's legislation to ban the promotion of homosexuality in schools. Um, so a much more ambivalent record. And, uh, well, not really ambivalent, actually, uh, a record that was, certainly wasn't supportive of um, LGBT groups. And, but he did um, engage with these groups in office. And uh, you can see in this quote, he kind of celebrated Ken Livingstone's GLC vision of London. Um, uh, he also, like Ken Livingstone, framed his equalities thinking around the Olympics and East London's redevelopment. But in his London plan, the mention of specific minorities was taken out and that included LGBT groups. And there was also less clarity about what social infrastructure meant for distinct groups and a less uh, nuanced approach to dealing with social difference in a highly diverse city. So we could say that he saw LGBT groups, particularly in terms of the pink pound and, um, and association with uh, gay businesses. And the uh, US queer scholar, queer study scholar, Lisa Duggan, caused this kind of politics, a politics of homonormativity that emerged in the 2000s that has this kind of gay positive vision of equality, but it's aligned with corporate agendas and the centrality of, of mainly wealthy white gay men. And it's certainly not um, coming from the more liberationist identity politics of the past or intersectional queer politics of the present. So on the screen, you can just see some of the actions that, um, were taken during this period. Um, and again, it's not, you know, it's not black and white. Um, and certainly by the end of Boris Johnson's tenure, there was a new interest in how cultural venues were being negatively impacted by development. And uh, he supported the campaign for the Royal Boxall Tavern, which was the, um, which is, you know, one of the main venues, LGBT venues in London, a cabaret space. Um, and this politics of the night becomes really important in this period and uh, becomes increasingly important and the idea that we need to save the night um, how that's uh, how that's being thought of is mainly through the, the nighttime economy rather than the nighttime cultures at this moment but uh, under Boris Johnson's tenure there, there was this idea of having a nighttime economy champion um, and starting to champion some of these grassroots venues at the very end of his uh, tenure. And these are things that uh, Sadiq Khan has 
continued with uh, and really developed and perhaps in a much more active uh, uh, mode. Um, and certainly his uh, connection with LGBT politics has been more widespread in terms of the groups that he's engaged with um, and his kind of intersectional approach to thinking about questions of social difference and engaging with the specific needs or um, requests of particular groups. And so his association with things like The Outside Project, which is a homeless uh, crisis organization for LGBT people in Clerkenwell, which has received funding from the GLA. Um, but also some more specific actions like taking forward this cultural infrastructure plan as a, as a way of thinking about uh, policies that can actually protect some of this infrastructure, mapping them alongside each other. So LGBT venues are mapped along other signs, kinds of cultural uh, infrastructure. You go to the GLA's website and this data is upkept. And so now we have this much more detailed um, intelligence on where these spaces are and how they fit together as, a, as an infrastructure for London as a whole, as well as these quite specific tools. So for example, the LGBT venues charter, which the GLA came up with, which is a way of describing what an LGBT venue is that could um, help to work with developers in articulating why that might be something that's important to uh, reprovide or to protect in, within a development. So these, are giving material weight to these kinds of venues and the communities that use them in planning terms and in some ways the, the kinds of queer politics that I started off by talking about sit awkwardly with this way of, of, of planning the city um, you know they're normally venues that we associate with uh, being quite underground being quite pluralistic being inclusive and so there's ways of fixing things so that we can talk about them in planning there is a kind of tension there but I think the, it's interesting that quite radical queer activists have been willing to engage with these processes because they see the need to protect this uh, infrastructure not as a kind of nostalgic look to the past but because it's actively needed in the present to serve and in the future to serve new communities so some of these policies and strategies are filtering also down to the local level and to local boroughs. Um, and although many of these venues have been hard hit by the pandemic, the supportive environment in City Hall is quite discursively uh, powerful in, uh, in, in giving people a sense that they are being supported. So when we turn to look at why venues close, this is an interesting question. And there's obviously not one reason. Uh, these are just two maps showing how the distribution of clusters changes. Um, if you statistically present cl clusters of LGBT venues in London from 2002 to 2018. And when we look at media and public discussions regarding these closures, there's certain things that are emphasized. And one of them is online connectivity. So digital networking has overtaken from the need to have physical venues. But I would argue, and certainly the work that we've done in Urban Lab suggests that this offers a quite oversimplifying causal logic between the proliferation of ubiquitous technologies and the demise of venues uh, as in-person sociality reduces or shifts to more private domains. Those things might be happening, but they're not the only thing that's happening. And certainly 
physical venues are not disconnected from uh, technological ones. Um, they're quite deeply linked. Um, and also some of these interpretations do homogenize LGBT communities as if everybody is the same and everybody's doing the same thing. So for example, um, you know, different demographics might engage with these technologies in different ways. There might be generational shifts there as well. Uh, and of course, these venues, as we started out by looking at with the London Lesbian and Gay Centre, there was already an extension there through different kinds of media, through publications and through telephone technologies at the time. So telephone trees were really important in the 80s as a kind of support network for people. So, you know, you can look at this historically as well. There's always been this extension of venues through communication technologies and the media. So most importantly, I think these arguments distract from the wider post-industrial technological and economic shifts that have reshaped urban development since the deregulation of the markets in the 1980s and the role of large-scale infrastructure development facilitated by the mayors. And even in the more supportive policy environment though, uh, venues and queer heritage are still overlooked or misunderstood in development contexts or somehow seem to be out of sync with the aesthetics of global London. And I want to talk about a couple of examples in Tower Hamlets, just as a way of um, bringing some of this together and wrapping things up. And of course, Tower Hamlets is a really important site of debate about the cosmopolitan city. It's been a borough that's been so uh, super diverse that it has been a place where uh, there have been continuous discussions about social difference and how that should be managed by the city. Um, so, the first example, the Joiner's Arms, it's on Hackney Road and it's a venue that's been uh, a nighttime venue since 1869 when it was a beer house. Um, but in the 1990s, it was the first gay venue to open in the New Labour era and in fact had a lot of political meetings linked to the new labor rights agendas in this space and it was also as well as a night space a late night bar um, it was uh, also a place for um, fundraising for health um, for education and so on so it really serves those multiple functions so we need to look beyond the pure leisure value of these spaces which is important but to think about what else they do for these groups and it was notably inclusive. I interviewed the operator, uh, he sadly died a couple of years ago, but David Pollard, before the venue closed, was the operator. And he was really proud of its inclusivity to people of all genders, all sexualities, all ethnicities, and so on. So it really had this kind of new labor type um, politics of cosmopolitanism built into the operation of this space. And by the 2010s, it had become extremely popular um, and uh, you can see that it's been written about by um, the queer geographer Johan Andersen, uh, and he notes that it was really a very effective space in terms of how it worked across difference um, in terms of the gentrification context of East London. And this is, you know, this is really important. We should be looking at examples of spaces that do this because if we look at the Equalities Act and the public sector equality duty, one of the duties that's overlooked, I think, is, um, is about integration. It's not just about anti-discrimination or equality of opportunity, but how do we, to use the terms of the law, foster good relations between people who share protected characteristics and those who don't. So 
where we see spaces that are functioning effectively as spaces of integration, why, why do they do that? How do they do that? It seems really important to learn from them. Um, so what happened here? Well, in 2015, it was, it was closed due to uh, mixed use development and a campaign group had formed because they knew this was going to happen. And it was one of the first venues to win asset of community value status for LGBT community members which by the way is not a perfect planning tool, but it's a tool that's been used a lot. And one of the things that the Localism Act in 2011 allows communities to do is to protect uh, their assets through this um, designation in planning, which is temporary, uh, which normally requires a local residential community, which isn't necessarily useful for LGBT communities, um, but it's, it's a tool that if you have lots of voluntary um, um, a person power to put in you can achieve this uh, designation and so in this you can see a visualization of the scheme and you can see that there was a, a retention of the facade of the venue but that was all really and in the planning application it wasn't even mentioned that it was a queer venue um, and so on so you see this kind of uh, uh, really neglect of um, of the venue within the planning documents. But what Tower Hamlets have done is actually insist through a section 106 agreement that the developer must provide a new LGBT venue. So this is the first time this has happened. Um, and you know, it's, it's the available tools being used in quite an innovative way to think about protecting the assets of a particular group. Um, but unfortunately, you know, six years later, the venue is still sitting there boarded up. There's no development happening yet. Um, so, you know, it, it's quite an imperfect process, really, and recognising this, the developer has now just provided pop-up uh, funding for a pop-up space as well. So, these are complex and fraught processes, but through this, LGBT groups form as well, um, new communities form across different generations and make claims about what the community needs. And so this isn't just about heritage as being backward looking, this is about a quite active dynamic process. Um, and now they are organizing a community cooperative to bid to run the venue. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was described as uh, uh, by um, a scholar called Bukia Laro as a wonky venue. And I think that's quite interesting because it was wonky in what it provided. It was somehow out of sync with the city. Um, um, and also out of sync with development processes, but it was very much valued. Um, uh, it ran in a wonky way. So how do we protect the wonky in, in cities like London? This is a key question, I think. And then just briefly, uh, also in Tower Hamlets, another instance where here a nightclub, the back street, um, which had operated for decades uh, with a late license, seven days a week in a highly built up neighborhood without any complaints whatsoever, on low rent and sometimes even no rent um, uh, was completely overlooked in a planning ap application for another large mixed-use development um, and in this case there wasn't a sort of young social media savvy crowd campaigning around it and doing direct actions um, but there were lots of public uh, objections to the planning application because it was very much a valued space um, and you know, I think it's quite interesting that um, the way in which the, the the club itself was overlooked in the planning application, um, the type of language that's used 
to discuss it once it is recognized is interesting as well. Um, there's a kind of puritanical aspects of this and you know, it raises this question of how do we how do we provide night space in the city? Uh, often it's precariously located. Um, when it becomes very established like this, is there a better way that we can protect it within the ecosystem of the city? Um, or does it always have to be out of place and out of keeping with the area? Uh, and in this case, there was a very, although the um, the heritage documents, um, sorry, just to say that, yeah, in this case, the development was eventually rejected at inquiry, but there was this debate about the, what's the value of a nightclub? Does it really form part of the cultural infrastructure? And, and how does the development of this affect public benefit or disadvantage public benefit? So the normal things that happen in development context, but quite an interesting case for talking specifically about what a nightclub does as cultural infrastructure, as in this case, uh, a space with an international as well as a local reputation. And from our point of view, uh, UCL is a very interesting space because it's where the Slade alumni uh, Derek Jarman did some of his experimental video work in the 1980s. There was a, a, a gay club on this site called Benji's. Um, and, you know, this is kind of interesting that this queer history and this recent and present queer use doesn't get mentioned in a heritage report that goes all the way back to the 8th century. So this idea that planning processes actually create ways of displacing conflict and controversy and, and the existing um how can we do this stuff better really um and if you get a chance i would really recommend looking at this direct jarman film will you dance with me it's an amazing beautifully shot um kind of whirly gig of a dance floor showing the great diversity of of these characters in 1980s east london in this gay club um this great mix of of, of different people um sort of pulsating around to these uh, the technologies of lighting and sound in the dance floor even if you you know you're not um some somebody who's into dance floors it's kind of interesting as a visual experiment um, and it points to how these clubs operate as networks of social relations across different groups and it also in this context points to the quite deep queer histories of east london um, and which are intertwined with the cultural and technological histories of, of the boroughs. So I want to conclude there, and I'll conclude with this rather ethereal image taken from the 3D digital scan my team have just done of the Royal Vauxhall Tavern during the pandemic. And it shows the view to the empty stage and these unintentionally ghostly presences of stools, of mirror balls, of optics. So although the queer infrastructure I've described doesn't have a centre and it will always be elusive in some ways to planning processes, this most archived venue is a really important site of recognition. And I think it points at once to the past, to the present and to the future and to the continuing role for physical spaces as well as their digital extension. I hope I've suggested some of the ways that these humble, but important locally and globally transportive, socially and culturally generative uh, venues serve multiple functions and support livelihoods across diverse groups. As they reopen after lockdown, they do so in conditions that are extremely difficult. Um, uh, and the RBT as the most celebrated venue is still subject to these. So the, the impact of licensing, uh, you know, and changing frameworks and uh, etc. And, you know, supporting communities who are often freelancers and in very precarious conditions. 
working in quicker resolutions. So even if the recent struggles over venues have been difficult and the pressures are only likely to increase, they also demonstrate robust responses and inventive collaborations between the boroughs and activists and the GLA and researchers. Um, and so I think we can learn from them. And this is happening not just in Tower Hamlets, but also Southwark, Camden. Um, and I think they show how we can collaborate to uh, extend queer infrastructures that are rooted in the past into the future. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ben. This was a really a fascinating talk. We've got a few questions for you in the Slido. So I'll read out the first one for you. What is happening to nighttime venues due to the pandemic? Great, thank you. That, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, in, I can really speak from the UK context, but I think it's um, something that uh, is uh, relevant elsewhere as well. That on the one hand, you've got venues really working hard to collaborate with each other to support each other. And on the other hand, you've got venues being neglected by the state and especially freelancers who work in nightlife industries, which are often characterized by informality. Um, so, you know, you've got a range of things happen, happening. Um, certainly nightclubs have been quite stigmatized in a lot of the media discussion around the transmission of the virus in certain locations. Um, whereas, you know, I think a lot of the venues themselves have put a lot of resource and um, intelligence into trying to make venues safer when they have been able to reopen, but at the same time they've had to respond very quickly to changing frameworks, opening and closing and opening and closing. Um, in the UK there is the Cultural Recovery Fund, which some of them have been able to get some funding support from, but really it's, it's a small um, amount of funding um, really to try and see them through what is a really difficult crisis. Um, and, you know, we'll, we have to see how this affects the development dynamics in London, but you know certainly they they're all still having to pay rent. And um, you know we were talking about this in a conference on Nightspace last week, and it's certainly something that's really a concern. Um, but at the same time, there's also these new global networks. You know, there's a um, global nighttime uh, network run by Vibe Lab, which is run by one of the ex mayors of the night in Amsterdam. Um, so there are these. You know, moments of collaboration and many scholars at UCL connecting with that well, because UCL um, does have quite a lot of people who are interested in nighttime stuff. Thank you, Ben. I've got um, another question for you. Would you say that the growing acceptance from society as a whole towards LGBTQ communities also plays a role in the number of venues available? I mean, it's an, it's an interesting one because I think it definitely um, yeah, there's the, one of the arguments that came up in the media discussions around the crisis of spaces in the mid 2010s was that, well, actually, social acceptance means they're not really needed. We don't need separate spaces. But actually, they're not really separate spaces in the first place. So it's one issue. So, for example, if we look at King's Cross, a lot of the clubs were mixed clubs or they were used on certain nights for LGBT users. Um, even where they were LGBT users, they weren't you know, excluding other people. But um, but those communities do have particular reasons for wanting to come together and for you know connecting to the the, the past and um, for sharing resources. They do have common common interests, even if they're a diverse uh, 
community. So I think it's an interesting one, and, and certainly in the London context where de where developers have offered to re-provide a nighttime venue but not specify it as LGBT uses, then that really hasn't satisfied people um, because it's not answering this question of how do you sustain a particular particular cultural um, form or activity. So it's you know it's it's too simplistic to say we don't need these spaces anymore. Actually, a lot of um, that question you really have to think about in terms of the the relative privilege within LGBT groups. You know, as a white middle-aged, you know, um, relatively well-off gay man, um, you know, I have a certain kind of privilege. Whereas, uh, you know, um, women and uh, trans people, you know, um, you know, the people are still having to deal with the same kinds of uh, physical threats um, that uh, all uh, lesbian and gay people had to deal with in, in the past. So, you know, it's a question that you have to think about quite carefully, I think. Thank you, Ben. I guess we've got time for one final question. What do you think the future of uh, LGBTQ physical spaces look like? <laughs> That's a good one. Um, hmm. Well, actually, this is a really interesting question because um, one of the things that the things that the new collaborations, <coughs> excuse me. Sorry, I just got some tree pollen or something. <clears throat> One of the things that the GLA <clears throat> type collaborations, give me one moment. <clears throat> okay, maybe I can try now. <clears throat> so one of the things that the collaborations with the boroughs and the GLA and activists has allowed for is new purpose-built spaces. So when I showed you all of those infrastructural spaces, they were all quite, you know, improvised and they're quite inaccessible and, you know, people have done their best with those spaces, but they're not ideal. So I think we now have the chance for thinking with other groups around inclusive design in more proactive ways. You know, certainly there's a stronger inclusive design movement in the US context than there has been in the UK, I think. So you know, that GLC building, if we'd carried on with that kind of equalities through design and through reconfiguring buildings, you know, what where could we be now? But actually we're looking at, you know, really costly refits of lots of spaces. So um, yeah, so it'd be interesting to see how can you design more inclusive spaces? And that's something that the activists are really keen to do. They're very forward looking. Thank you. Um, unfortunately, this is all we've got time for today. But Ben, there are loads of other questions on Slido, so oh, well, I'll leave it with you to, to, to have a look and perhaps okay. provide some answers uh, separately. But thank you very much for a great talk. And thank you, everyone, for being with us today. If you want to watch more fascinating lectures or listen to the UCL podcasts, visit the UCL Minds webpage. So stay well and goodbye for now.